the same, right? There, there's still a big mentality in a lot of countries that if you fail once starting a company, your career is over, right? Like there is no respectability. There is no step back up. You kind of have to, right. to move on. And so I think that is something that is unique, uniquely American historically, and you're starting to see it, you know, permeate other parts of the, the world. But Welcome to the Trusted Partner Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer and Gabe Chodak. Jesse and Gabe are relationship managers at Cobblestone Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm that serves families and individuals in all aspects of their financial lives. All opinions expressed by Jesse and Gabe or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Cobblestone Capital Advisors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Cobblestone Capital Advisors may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email with questions, suggestions, or content ideas to our email address, podcasts at cobblestonecap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Trusted Partner Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Today on the Trusted Partner Podcast, we're welcoming David Brown. David is the founder and managing partner at Impellent Ventures, a venture capital firm based in Rochester, specializing in pre-seed, seed, and occasionally Series A investments. If you don't know exactly what that means, don't worry. We'll get into that during the episode. Yeah, Jesse, venture capital space is really interesting, gets a lot of attention, while a lot of people don't necessarily understand the nuances of it. And similarly, it's a great way to spearhead innovation in this country. And we're very fortunate to have someone like David here who is bringing capital into Western New York, a place that hasn't really had too much capital infusion in the venture capital space to fund a lot of these entrepreneurs and startups that could have the next latest and greatest. So here's David Brown of Impellent Ventures on episode 34 of the Trusted Partner Podcast. You're definitely a little bit removed from the halls of Pittsford Southern High School <laughs> together, but great to spend the time together. Um, let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit, what is venture capital? How do you define it? How does the investing world define it? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. And uh, as you said, it's been a long time since the Sullen days. I think we just had our 20-year reunion, which is both, both amazing and horrifying. <laughs> we, don't need to, we don't need to say the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so venture capital, right? So venture capital is a part of the private equity cycle, right? So private equity refers to anything that's not, say, in the public markets, and that can cover real estate, late stage operations, buyouts, acquisitions. But venture is the, the sleeve that specifically looks at early stage startup creation and growth. And so even within venture, there's kind of two subsects that you can focus on. One is called the later stage growth. So once you kind of prove that a product has product market fit, going through the, the cycles of making sure you help that company get to various markets, expand the top line revenue and try to find profitability. We are in the early stage venture side. So we specifically look at taking companies and ideas that are really early on and helping them identify how do you prove that there's even a market for the product that you want to take out there? How do you listen to your customer? How do you start to tweak that product to something that's actually marketable? And then how do you start to grow initial revenues from that side? So Ventures is fun sleeve that covers everything in that, that startup to early growth uh, creation. And even within that, you get a lot of kind of fun subcuts. 
And I, I would assume it's really important as a fund manager, as, as an investor to kind of define, like you said, what area you want to focus on or else it could be too large of a space. Yeah, look, I, I think there are fundamentally different types of investment theses that venture funds take on, right? So you have single stage funds like us. So we look at what's called pre-seed and seed, and we can talk about what that is later. You have funds that are at what we're talking about growth, and then you have what we call multi-stage funds. So the larger names that some people might know, the Andreessen Horowitzes, the Sequoias, they try to look at companies both from the early stage all the way to the late stage IPO, and they try to invest all along the same. Um, what's interesting is that has whether you just do one stage or multiple stages, has a big impact in terms of how you're allocating cash across the life cycle of that company, what sort of return cycles you're looking for, and even how long you might be in an investment. So earlier, Dave, you, you used the word, you know, you guys are focused on the early, the early, early stages. Mm-hmm. We were talking before recording about your first fund that is now live. If I were to look at the portfolio of companies in that fund, I mean, how young are these companies? Are, are we talking like they've been in existence for a few months? Are they maybe five years old, but pre-profit? What does that look like? You know, for, from the stage that we're looking at, right, the pre-seed and seed can cover everything from two guys in a room just coming up with an idea um, to people who have actually started to prove revenues, right? So I would say if you think about our, our business, we have companies that are pre-revenue. We typically want to find something that's going to have revenue with at most 12 months from the time of our investment to companies that are doing about a million or a little bit over a million dollars of revenue already um, and they're starting to prove that product market fit. What matters to us is that you have the right founding team and you are starting to look at the market with the right lens um, and then we can be accretive to the growth of that company creation. So, you know, if you're thinking about Uber, right, like we're trying to take Uber, now when they're already growing city to city, we're looking for them when they're saying, hey, who's going to write my first check so that I can go and test whether or not this actually exists. I mean, I actually remember we were in Boston. I met Travis at a party when he was just getting the company going. And he's like, oh, Dave, you should take a look at, at this. You know, it's really, really interesting, like, grab a ride home on, on this. I was like, how does the technology work? He's like, oh, it's great. You push a, a button in the app and it, it geolocates you and finds your friend. And this is back in 2000, uh, what would it have been? 2012, right? So it really wasn't technology that was in place. And I was like, I don't think that works. He's like, yeah, no, no, but we're just learning, right? So like, I just want information. Is, is this useful? Is this good? But so how does this actually work? Well, when you push that button, it's going to ping Travis, who's then going to send a text to his own friend and say, hey, drive out front now. Right, right, right. So it'll look like it. Like That's what we're looking for, people who are almost out in the vaporware or, or kind of testware, okay. just to see whether or not people want to buy it and then continue to tweak that early product to you know what's going on. I'm just thinking about it, and there's probably so many people who have had great ideas whether just out of college or they are working somewhere and then developing it and they may go to like friends and family and they may get funded from that source, which we know there is a lot of quiet money in Mm -hmm. Rochester, but the, the point of VC investing is not just the capital. It's obviously a critical component, but it is that, the connections, the ability to advise and help this company strategically grow and strategically think about next steps. Absolutely. No, that that's, I mean, look, there's, it's always a joke. You can always take 
what's called dumb money, and, and I would never say friends and family money, even though they call friends, family, and fools money, right, uh, is necessarily dumb money. There's a lot of very talented people who have very good advice that they, they help impart to the startups here. Um, but our goal, right, is not the company that's going to take 20 years and then sell for $50 million. Our goal is to say, hey, how do we create that next generation changing company that's going to be the next Kodak that's going to go to a billion to $5 billion worth of revenue in the next 10 to 15 years? And how do we provide you with the resources to think better, you know, think bigger and think faster in terms of how you accelerate to that point? And so. So, so is that a function, Dave, of, of you and your partners taking an active role in these companies, whether it's, whether it's, I don't know, do you mandate a board seat or just some sort of, maybe it's not a mandate, but it's just friendly advice. Like, hey, we are here to help you guys along the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, we across the board don't believe in, you know, being overly prescriptive for our companies, but we believe that we can be a strategic help if the companies are willing to be honest with us. And so when we're grading, and there's a lot of things we grade, but you know, honesty, transparency is one of the biggest qualities of successful founders because at the end of the day, right, well, we don't know, we can't help them solve. And so we do two things, right? One, it's strategic help that we provide. We're all operators prior, and so there are pieces that we can fit in. But then it's also gap filling. And so someone might come to us and say, hey, I've got a really bad chief operating officer, I need to figure out what to do with them or how to coach them. So we either have programs or we have ways to replace them. Or we have new executive search programs um, so we can help them figure that out. They might say, hey, I'm doing really good here, but I think I need to find another million dollars of capital because there's an opportunistic growth avenue over here. And so then it's getting in front of the right relationships. They might say, hey, look, I'm having a challenge specifically figuring out how to drive this part of the revenue stream and pipeline. Who should I talk to from there? And then we're going to say, oh, great. You know, Jason Robbins from DraftKings is one of our, our LPs. He's a perfect fit for you. You should sit down and chat with him about that because he had the same issue five years ago. And he can give you insights on how they solved it then and how they're solving it now. What's the breakdown of your day or your time from fundraising to serving on boards of companies you've invested in to just advising to traveling to um, just day-to-day operations yeah I, I wish I could say there was a day-to-day and that's part of the part of the reason that I think I love and hate you know, what we're doing and, and I say hey with kind of just in, in my voice right is that uh, where we are matters both on what's happening in that week and then what's happening in that time of year. So when we're in fundraise cycles, right, we might be ramped up a little bit more in terms of the relationship building that we're doing there, working with some of our our LPs and family offices to help them think about their own strategies and how we fit into that, um, to periods where we're not fundraising, right? And so when we close in the end of this year and we're going to our kind of lull, all of 24 will be 100% focused on just our companies, supporting them and getting them to where they need to be. I would say on a typical week now, while we're in fundraise cycle, I might be 40% fundraise, 40% you know new company identification, 20% portfolio uh, management and support. When you get to those off years, it might be 40% new company formation, 60% portfolio support. And so it varies a lot um, and how far you can engage and how much you can do varies on kind of what other needs you have. But then we also have things where companies are doing great and something comes up and the rest of my calendar gets clear for the next two to three days. You know, we were talking about one of our companies that is doing well, but needs a little bit more support. And so we're trying to figure out how my partner can clear up an extra hour in his week for the next two months, just so that he can be there every single week, hands-on helping support them and go through it because he's specifically trained to what they need to do now. It's interesting 
when I think about Cobblestone and the private real estate platform we've built, and you know, 15 years ago, we were out looking and trying to identify different opportunities, and now there's more coming across our investment team's desk than they can even keep up with. How is it for you in terms of identifying new companies? Are you seeing similar, like now people are just reaching out and it almost takes more time to sift out versus you identifying, hey, that's a really intriguing company or a really intriguing idea that I want to talk to. Yeah, no, I, I think we were talking about kind of our team function, right? Like if I can hire one more person, it's going to be someone to do our, our sifting. So when we first did it, we've been lucky to have very good relationships and good mentors. And so year one, I was probably seeing somewhere around five to 700 deals across the, the course of the year. So, you know, call it two deals a day um, throughout the entire of the year. Now we've expanded. We've got a pretty good footprint in terms of both media and recognition. We're seeing between 3,500 and 4,000 deals this year of different levels, skills. Some of them you can eliminate off the front because they're saying, hey, we want a growth round of funding. You're like, great, that's awesome. We don't do that. Or, hey, we want to do something in biotech and we don't touch biotechnology so we can get rid of it. But that's maybe 5 to 10% that's just, you know, misguided. And so you have a pretty heavy batch of things you need to look through. We don't like to not respond to people, so we want to actually at least say yes, no, maybe uh, as we're going through that. And anyone that we say yes to, now it's not just a cold email. Now you got to go spend a minimum of 30 minutes learning about what they're doing and how they're growing and where things are coming from. And so for us, that, that kind of time management of looking through and sorting through the deals can be really tedious. Uh, it can be long, but I think that's ultimately what makes a venture fund slightly advantageous over just doing angel investing is like, and the both of them have a place, right? But the the variety and breadth of what we're able to see and the, the variety and breadth of what you get to access is cool. For us, right, like at the end of the day, really great teams lead the way. And so as long as you have a deck or you have something that's unique, you can start to identify at least if the team is interesting enough. And so that tends to be our first guy. And we can get rid of 50 to 60% of companies based on not having the right team for the right market. What's an example of, of a good team? And maybe you can even think of, of a, an investment that you guys have recently made as yep. far as the attributes of the team that really stood out. Yeah, so look, I think at the end of the day, right, from a, a great team, there are two things that are really fundamental. One is that you have to understand you're wrong and you're going to continue to be wrong. People come up with ideas. As you said, ideas are everywhere none of the ideas that we invest in are new, right? Like they might have a new spin on something, but pretty much everything's been invented or thought of in some capacity and it's just about execution. And so we're looking for people who can come up with a bright idea, but know that they're in service of a customer and they need to be listening to the customer and tweaking their product to resolve a pain point that that customer has. And so when we talk about product market fit, it's kind of saying, hey, how do you take your idea and get it to something that doesn't just work for one customer, two customers, and has a lot of customizations, but how do you create something that can kind of under hit the underlying pain point that they're willing to pay for over and over again and not just for a small segment of the population, but a much larger segment of the population. And so we look for people who have that kind of product management thought process and listening skills to be able to do that. And then the second piece is you can be really smart. You can figure out the problem. If you can't get people to help you out, you're in a lot of trouble. And we find a lot of people fall down when it comes to basic leadership skills of how do I get not just people to come work for me, but A-plus people to come work for me, and how do I identify things that I can't do myself, and I can find someone else much better to come work with me on that. So we always say that the best founding teams are the ones that 
have those unique insights into customer pain points and can really figure that out. And then two, can go out and build an unbelievable team and, and value prop behind them because that's what's going to allow them to replace themselves over and over again. And the really good founders are the ones who keep saying, okay, I was good at this yesterday, but this person's probably better. So I'm going to bring this person in and just continue to relegate myself to mostly fundraise and, and sales, right? right? And get out of the rest of the business. Um, I'm going to hop on my soapbox for a second please, and we can please. put it in or not, but... Take that three-inch jump. Get up there, Gabe. <laughs> the... When you talk about seeing 3,500 to 4,000 deals a year, right? There's always ways to be bearish on the economy, on the global outlook. And that is what makes America just unbelievable. There's so many people out there innovating, taking risks, taking leaps, and one of those may be the next big one, but a lot of those, even if they're not that Uber or Hulu, they are you know, a good-sized company that employs people, that causes growth to whatever region they're in, and innovates the economy. And so it is always very easy to look at headline news, look at what's going on, and be bearish, but things like that should make us feel somewhat good about the growth of this economy and growth of the country in the future. Oh, 100%. No, I, I mean, we look at and we've touched deals in other parts of the world, and that ecosystem's not the same, right? There, there's still a big mentality in a lot of countries that if you fail once starting a company, your career is over, right? Like there is no respectability. There is no step back up. You kind of have to, yeah. to move on. And so I think that is something that is unique, uniquely American historically, and you're starting to see it, you know, permeate other parts of the, the world. But it's a huge opportunity, and as you said, right, like not every venture that we're going to invest in and, you know, that needs to be there is going to be massive, but they're going to be very meaningful, right? Like Rochester is particularly good with great companies that are doing $200 million of sales, you know, and, and they've been doing $200 million of sales for years, and you just might not have heard about them. That doesn't mean they're all venture scalable or venture-focused businesses, um, but, you know, we'll make a few investments that are going to be super interesting on the get-go. We're going to look at them and say, you guys have started going down the right direction, but we're not positive this is going to scale quickly enough. You know, at that point, you have different options. If you invest cheaply enough, um, you know, you can say, cool, let's move to profitability. We don't need to raise additional capital. We'll run this over the next 10 years, and then we'll either do a, a you know, buyback of our shares or we'll, you know, kind of sit there and give our investors their shares and, and be part of that for the long haul. Um, or you can do dividend buyouts or otherwise. But not everything is going to – has to be a venture-backed business, and that's one of the, the things I spend just as much time helping people with is saying, this is awesome. Don't take money from us. Like once you take money from us, you might not be able to run the business that you actually want to run. And so if you want to come into this side of the industry, you have to have a very specific mentality, a very specific outcome that you're trying to get to. Otherwise, you know, you might not get to what, what you're able to do. And for a lot of people, right, 95% of acquisitions are sub $50 million acquisitions. Those can still be incredibly meaningful for individuals, for economies, for cities, right? Uh, but they just might not fit our radar very well. The traditional acquisition that I think of, Dave, is uh, an owner of a business who's looking to get some sort of liquidity, right? They're looking to 
pay themselves for their years and years and years of hard work. But correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, at the stage that you're talking about, at the VC stage, these owners, they're not looking for liquidity necessarily for themselves, right? They're looking for liquidity for the business, meaning they just need operating expenses. They need to give themselves one, two, three years of runway to continue building, to continue growing. And then maybe at some later stage down the line, that's when their ownership big payday might come from private equity or going public or something like that. Is that a reasonable? Yeah, summary? no, no. I, I think, um, so there's a lot of things about venture-backed businesses that I think there's there's myths and then there's realities, right? So what's interesting as a founder perspective, right, when you're going out and raising money, presumably you're putting it all into the, the company, especially at the early stage. You know, we're not looking to give you $2 million and have you spend $2 million on salaries and outcomes, right? Like, if we go to someone who's just our business and they're planning to pay them five, sell $500,000 a year, they're probably not ready for this business. Um, you know, typically we have founders who have invested in the company themselves. They're going to be taking a, a way lower than market salary. A lot of their employees are going to be doing the same, and it's mostly because they see equity as the payoff. Mm-hmm. The catch on that is there are kind of two periods in which equity can be sold. One is a final exit stage, right, where you sell the company or go public, and that's where a lot of people will find their exits. Um, but then there's also people who do sell secondary shares along the way, right? So, you know, just because your company raises a Series D round of capital does not mean you're going to have a successful exit. And so very often we even tell some of our own founders, look, when you're doing well, your company gets up to you know, $400, $500 million valuation, feel free to sell $10 million worth of your shares and get a little liquidity there. So some people, I mean, Bill Gates always jokes about that, right? He goes, probably the worst decision I ever made was selling some of Microsoft on secondary. He goes, I sold $5 million because one of our VCs told us it was going to be a really good idea and that it would give me peace of mind. And it did give me peace of mind, but he goes, it's probably worth $2.5 billion today, right? So like, that was an expensive lesson, but... Um, you know, there, for all that, there are people who, who then watch their business right. disappear afterwards and kind of happy that they did it. Yeah. But, yeah, so mo- most people who are going to be going into this are, are not looking for short-term liquidity. Um, they're kind of looking for that what's that 8- to 10-year exit that's really going to make intergenerational wealth for them and their families. So when you talk about, you know, limited partners of yours, I mean, pretty much high net worth individuals – family offices and institutions has there been a democratization of access to vc funds and what does that look like do you have any thoughts on the matter yeah so there's actually a lot of interesting things right so historically you had to be either a qualified investor or a qualified purchaser right so a lot of vc funds actually say hey we don't want you into this fund if you don't have at least five million dollars sitting on the side um, because we want to make sure you're going to participate in a lot of subsequent funds, and we want to make sure that your check sizes are big enough. There's also regulations where our fund, as an example, we can't take 90, more than 99 investors in a given fund cycle. And so you have to be careful because you stack a bunch of 50K investments in there, and you're going to only have a $5 million fund, right? You're not going to be able to get yourself very far without having to stack a lot of those funds quickly. Two big things that have happened, one are kind of serial um, SPVs that allow people to stack up more funds quickly. So you've seen funds like Alumni Venture Group start to say, hey, cool, we're going to start doing a bunch of 50K minimums. We're going to do a one-year investment cycle versus what we're doing, which is three- to five-year investment cycles, um, and try to get money in and out the door very quickly and then just load up an easier entry point for people. And then you're also seeing you know, some regulatory 
changes or uh, recommendations to allow people to take risk at a lower income level, a kind of change of the accredited uh, investor group. And then you're also seeing crowdfunding platforms for people who want to do deals directly. What I would say is I, I think there's a lot of pros with it. I warn people, particularly in you know who are, are just starting their wealth journey, to be careful with them, um, especially as you're learning, because venture is risky, right? For every deal that works out, there's going to be nine that don't work out. Um, and if you're doing directed deals, that number may be higher than the traditional venture firm because you don't have the same amount of deal flow or access, right? Um, and so I think there's a lot of pros to that because especially what I talked about earlier, right? Like my belief is equity is one of the biggest tools for economic creation and opportunity. Um, but you have to do that with the right proportion to wealth. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly where Cobblestone benches it, but typically we look at five to 10% of someone's portfolio or net worth should be in alternatives, right? Um, it's a good way to say, hey, you might be able to get a nice bump, something that helps you in the retirement account. But if everything went to, to kaput tomorrow, you're not going to be in, in dire straits for that. And so you just want to be careful if you're doing those type of investments, not to over allocate yourself to any one deal or any one access. And we, we, we talked to a lot of good friends locally who absolutely over allocated themselves to a few deals and those sting when they go out. Right, right. That that permanent loss of capital is always something that should be on any investor's mm-hmm. mind. And, and right-sizing those bets, right-sizing that allocation is a fundamental part of portfolio construction. Correct, yeah. And that's that's what I don't think a lot of people think about from the venture side, right? It's like we preach, you know, variety when it comes to your public market stocks, right? Like an index has more value than, you know, putting your entire thing into one or two stocks. Sure, the one or two stocks could outperform or they could get right. you in a lot of right. trouble. It's the same thing with venture. If you choose one or two deals or even one or two fund managers and you don't get the right variety, you start to run into you know, the, the issue of not having enough numbers, right? So venture is definitely a game of large numbers where if you want to have a unicorn company that comes out of an early stage portfolio, the number tends to be one out of every 30 venture deals you know, invested has a good chance of getting there. And so we specifically target 35 to 40 deals per, per portfolio. So we have one, maybe two, that'll be full fund returners uh, and really have the opportunity to make this fund not just a, a return of capital, but three, five, 10x type of fund for our investors. What are some of those conversations like, or where do you kind of realize that you have to pull the plug. I mean, you just talked right out of 35. I was some old one may be that unicorn. There's probably some successful ones in there, but the the nature of venture capital investing, there are a good amount of failures. Where what's that process look like or how do you come to the realization? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a a lot of pieces that sit in that, right? One is trying not to quit on companies too early because oftentimes it takes a while before these things really hit. Um, we look at Palantir as an example, right? Everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. Like what an overnight success that company was. They were 17 years before they got public, right? And that was a huge public IPO, but it took a long time. And the investors were paid royally for that, but they had to be patient. And there were a number of points in which that company almost died. And so for us, as we're looking at across our portfolio, it's one, is the product market fit? Is there something unique that we, we think they're creating? that the market might not be timed for yet or that it's going to take a little longer or that the sales cycle just takes a while. And so you're trying to to weigh out what is the long tail 
or long-term potential for those companies. I think the other piece is, is kind of looking at it and saying, if something bad happens and you get to a termination event, how do you optimize for outcomes, right? So the majority of our fund return is going to be from the companies that are outperforms, right? We get one company that 200Xs, like ACB Auctions did in, in Buffalo a few years ago. That will recover every single loss you had plus a lot more. But that doesn't mean that the companies that are 1X you know, or, or one portion of your you know, portfolio don't have real meaningful cash to your investors and to, to your fund. And so we always look at when something's winding down, what else can we see sell? Like, what can we recover? What opportunities do we have? Is there strategic, right? Like, most people don't talk about it, but there's a, a term in the industry called acquire, which basically means that the company is doing well, there's value, but what you build is an unbelievable team. And that's really meaningful for larger acquisition resources. And so sometimes you're just selling off the people in the company, right? So there's value in the company, even when you're underwater, and we see that as an opportunity to be able to recover and grow uh, as much as possible. And so if you think about a, a venture portfolio like what we were talking about, right, out of 10 companies, one might return the entirety of the fund, you know, have really outsized, two might be called a 5 to 10x, and then, you know, you might have two to three more that are anywhere from a 2 to a 5x, while the other ones are one or lower. And so it's kind of identifying how much you can get out of those companies when they are in tough shape, um, and then helping the founder and the team think successfully about transition. I mean, I think what's lost a lot of the time is that these are real people who are coming out of this and helping them adjust from that dream that they had to their next project is really interesting. Some of our best founders tanked hard their first time, right? Like they thought they had that big thing. They lost everything and we helped them rebuild and now they're absolutely crushing it. So, um, you know, it's kind of saying, where can we repurpose you, right? Um, one of the one of our, our investors, this guy, Rich Miner, he was the founder of Android, but the company that he ran before Android, he had ran for nine years. And he's like, dude, I was plugging, 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 and he didn't go out for zero, but he's like, I literally was trying to figure out what I was doing with this company. And then when we moved over to Android the next day, he's like, we literally had Android for seven, eight months before it was bought out by Google. And he goes, I got paid more in seven months of energy than I got paid on nine years of energy, right? And so it's kind of repurposing people to the right, the right component at that point. So a lot of things that fall into that. So he's the issue with the green tax then. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But you mentioned that before, Dave, about that ability. And it is not unique to America, but America definitely excels at it of being able to fail at business, but then try again and how not every society on earth has that same attitude towards business failure. And that actually came up recently, I think it was an episode of Freakonomics, I could double check, but they talked about that exact topic as kind of how to fail and how to fail well. Mm -hmm. uh, business is hard, running a business is hard, starting a business from zero is even harder. Um, so it's interesting that you're seeing that, you know, it, it, it's a big part of VC is you probably know that most of the businesses aren't going to be more than a 1x. Only out of curiosity, not specific to your funds, but VC in general. I mean, do you know some of those statistics about how many of the of a how many startups in a VC fund even get back to return the principal that was put into them? Yeah, so it's about what what we were talking about, right? So on the very later stage, maybe about fifty percent return capital or more, and then the other fifty percent lose in some capacity over time. Um, and again, they sting every time you do it. But you know, 
again, that kind of depends on stage. If you're a late stage fund, your tolerance for loss is a lot lower than mm-hmm. if you're an early stage fund because proportionally your winners are only going to be a 10x, right? They're, you're not going to get a 100x type of return. Um, and so your losers can't lose as much, right? And so you have a lot of a lot of kind of tolerances depending on what stage. But um, yeah, no, I mean, overall, lifetime success of companies is like, I think, 19% mm-hmm. of companies. Venture-backed companies tend to be slightly higher because there's already a bar to get in there and, and to go. But even within that, right, like, we're investing in companies to really change industries. And so that requires you to move really quickly. And if you don't move very quickly, a lot of your valuation are based on future earnings. It becomes hard to raise that money. And the companies die most of the time because they run out of cash. You know, it's not necessarily they don't have a decent product or a decent, you know, audience. They just cannot get enough cash to stay alive and keep moving. And so, you know, you're going to talk maybe about 50% survival rate. So... Obviously, some money comes from venture, some may come from other places, but lending's a c- component of this as well. And what we've seen over the last year and a half is a jump from essentially free money to pretty substantial interest rates, as well as a lot of Titan lending from traditional lending sources. What impact has that had? Uh, in the VC world and what do you think it will do in the next few years? Yeah, I think there's two pieces that, that it really hits, right? One is uh, we actually do take quite a bit of debt to our companies sometimes. So there's a special class of, of debt for venture capital companies called venture debt. And it specifically looks at lending against the venture investors capital. That money is not as cheap as it used to be. And that's compounded by the fact that some of the biggest venture debt lenders like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank both had some pretty bad years last year, right? Like They're both impressively back up and the, the teams that are running those companies are good friends and you can see them back to where they need to be. But um, there was a fear, right, that that market wasn't going to be what it was going to be. So two things, right? So that that starts to consolidate what we start to see as, as valuable, right, from a, a lending institutional capital as well as cost of capital for some of our own companies. Um, but then, two, it also starts to drive some of those companies to have to acquire more equity. And so when the demand for equity goes up and there's a lot of companies still being created and those companies or those venture funds, one, are having issues raising money because the risk-free rate is different and they might not have as much there or there hasn't been an exit market. Um, and so what's called DPI, which is our distributions per investment, are lower. And so not as many people have money to recycle into subsequent funds there's a lot bigger crunch on that venture capital uh, money, right? And so what that starts to say is pricing has to come down. And so we've already seen a pretty big pullback in terms of how much companies are valued at the later stages. I think you're going to see a little bit more of that activity happening in the next few years. Do you think that's pretty healthy? Do you think valuations, I mean, we obviously talked about in the public markets that some valuations were a little wonky. Do you Mm -hmm think that's pretty healthy for the ecosystem oh absolutely i mean look what the the average you know company that went public in 2020 you know value out at today right from an attack basis 70 percent down something like that like i think we were wrong on a lot of those prices right um and there's also you know someone was giving me this fact the other day there are what 50 public stocks worth over five billion dollars and yet there are 200 unicorns valued at more than that. Hmm. That's kind of hard to sustain that, that, that those guys are all going to be 
valued at the same level when they get onto public markets, right? It probably just is not sustainable. Some of them absolutely are worth, you know, quite a nice chunk and change, but a lot of them are overvalued. And I think healthier underwriting standards will be good, right? Everyone doesn't have to mark up 10x on every single round to still have a good company. Um, and so I think you'll see in the next few years, prices continue to get a little bit more reasonable. Um, I think the IPO window you know, starting to be tested in the last few months, I think you're going to start to see more companies come on and that'll start to float opportunity for public to see valuations that make more sense than they were historically. Um, and I think long-term, you're going to start to see the ramp up of activity again. Um, investments now in early stage, I think are really meaningful because in five to 10 years, you're going to be back into the thick of a really nice economy. Whereas right now we're, we're still kind of digging our way out from the last cycle. All right, Dave, we end every episode with a cool question that usually has, uh, it's a fun question. It's a unique question asking us a little bit about our specific opinions. Gabe had a good idea. What's the coolest idea that you've seen in your VC time? And then maybe Gabe and I, with a little less experience, can talk about, I don't know, some harebrained ideas that we have for a startup <laughs> business. So I've got, I've got mine. I may have talked about it over drinks a few times with different people. Dave, I expect the investment coming, um, but it's a, um, you know, they have autonomous lawnmowers and eventually autonomous snow plows for those of us in the Northeast will be coming. Um, will we even have snow at that point though? So <laughs> good question. Um, you know, it all depends on whether or not I purchase the, you know, per, per diem or per trip, uh, plow contract, um, or the season, but, um, my idea is for neighbors and neighborhoods to be able to take that technology to map out a pattern for those houses that purchase them. Essentially, you purchase it together, and then you know Monday it goes to my house, Tuesday it goes to the house next door, Wednesday it goes to the house, you know, kitty corner. But you know the technology to actually map that all out and control it and you know, reduce costs. For, yeah, shared resources yeah. and everything. I mean, look, that was one of the things that's awesome about what Tesla and a lot of the self-driving cars are. Like, there's two thoughts of where that technology goes at the end of the day, right? One is that, you know, everyone has their own mobile work desk and we want to meet. Our two cars just kind of come together and we say hi. Or the other idea is nobody really owns cars anymore. You know, these cars go to the person who needs them and they pick you up and you swap out those cars. They put on 200,000, 250,000 miles a year and then you go to the next thing, right? They, that's a, a really interesting thing. Shared resources are absolutely going to be part of the future. Yep. Boom. Done. As I'm in the midst of negotiating snow plowing contract for like ha half our neighborhood. Let, so. let, let's, let's fund you right now. Let's go. Perfect. So. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah. So from, from our side, right, uh, we see so many cool things at any point, right? Like, some of the, the more far-fetched stuff, like we're seeing some space technology that, you know, is looking at how do you mine different, you know, things. Like, I mean, that's what Elon's always been excited about, right? That, that's what SpaceX was saying is like, if we go to just one, one asteroid and we can mine that and bring that back, we've got enough raw material there to create $4 trillion worth of economic value, right? Um, so some of that super reach stuff is super interesting, right? Some of the new drone technology, self-flying technology is, you know, it's been in process for years, but it's really awesome what they're starting to do. Then we invest in a lot of things that are more everyday, right? Um, we have a pair of glasses that have magnets in them and they allow you to change the look and feel of them on a daily basis. So you can get 
perpetual you know customization we have people who are changing over hospital rooms they are changing the way the workflow works how you measure and track where equipment is in those rooms so that's really neat we have companies that are creating professional sports leagues that you know are, are recognizing trends and consumer behavior that are just going to be different i mean what's so cool is to watch each of those individual companies and sectors start to push on on things that are meaningful and that are watching transformation right we have a pair of co- uh, we have a company here in rochester they're creating leds that can do heads-up displays that are completely translucent can disappear in front of you and they can get a pixelation at twenty thousand, you know pixels per inch which is you know 5x what your tv is going to be and so you can see some things that i mean actually more better than your eyes really even going to be able mm-hmm. to detect but yeah. really really interesting so it's so cool. It's just awesome what's coming out, the difference of, of conversations and, and velocities of these businesses and the meanings that they start to imbue for our ecosystem. That's so cool. And uh, Jesse, now after all that, Jesse is going to follow up with a, a putter that actually works. Um. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the problems that I have at home and what I can do to solve them. And right now, not like that, Gabe, not like that. Right now, my lawn is covered in leaves. So there's got to be, you know, I, I guess I'm going to copycat you on the home maintenance ideas, Gabe, but there's got to be some sort of automated leaf pickup. I'm even thinking of a, a bot that, you know, goes around, scoops the leaves, condenses them down, turns them into a little fuel pack, mm-hmm. burns it to self-propel. And there's our engineer right there. There, there you go. <laughs> I love it. It could it could be even a steam engine, you know, an old steampunk leaf collector. Well, see, since you guys robot. are both on that, now you guys just got to figure out how to control the weather so our snow stays around for long. There we really? go. Yeah. yeah. There we go. There you guys go. If, if cobblestone doesn't work out for us, Gabe, we'll just go into business. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, yeah. We'll talk about names. And, and listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Trusted Partner Podcast. We want to start answering some of your questions on the show. So if you have an investing, a financial planning, a personal finance question, send that question to podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Once again, that's podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Thank you again for listening to the Trusted Partner Podcast. Podcast.